1: Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
2: Hi, friends. This is Alex from Look Mum No Hands. You won't hear from me in this episode. I'm just your stoker, stoking up the rear of our captain, Jenny, from the London Bike Kitchen. She was in California while on holidays over Christmas, and she had an opportunity to go to the Mara Museum of Bicycling and the Mountain Biking Hall of Fame. So please enjoy Jenny finding out more about the history of the bicycle, the story of the museum, and some of the people behind it. <laughs>
3: My name is Connie Thorpe Breeze, and we are at the Marin Museum of Bicycling and Mountain Bike Hall of Fame in Fairfax, which is in Marin County, California. What's
2: the history behind the museum? How did you guys get here, and has it always been
3: the Museum of Bicycling plus the Hall of Fame, or tell me more about that? Okay. Well, having a Museum of Bicycling is a dream that Joe Breeze, my husband, has had for probably 40 years or so. We both grew up in Mill Valley, a town near here and everyone of around our age at that time remembers Joe as the guy who was just trying in every way he could to turn people onto cycling because oh, wow. he felt at the time especially in this country cycling was like a secret very few people were riding bikes mm. and he knew how amazing they are for well he had become a bike racer but for getting around town for feeling healthy getting yeah. the places you want to go for the joy it brings when you pedal and you go flying along all of that he knew the bicycles had so much to offer for the environment and for communities oh, yeah. and for individuals, for Definitely. their own health and all that. They're a anyway.
2: magic formula for curing the, the, of society's ills. Yes, I don't know. I
3: uh, they're the like answer to so, the so many answer, things. They, everything. <laughs> they do, they do, yes. There's hardly anything they don't answer. And one of the things Joe felt when he was racing and he was working on bikes uh, early on, he hadn't yet become a frame builder, but he had been learning about bicycle history and especially that 19th century history when the bicycle was the vehicle and all the top engineers of the day were working on perfecting the bicycle and doing just beautiful workmanship on bicycles. The the 19th century bikes, especially golden age bikes, are just extraordinarily beautiful. And he felt that if he could collect some old bikes, early beautiful bikes, restore them and just put them places where people could see them, you know, put them in shopping malls or whatever. <laughs> that people would appreciate the bicycle more because they'd say, Wow, isn't that extraordinary? And so that's it was actually a search for that ongoing search for old bikes that led Joe to the mountain bike. <laughs> because he was looking it was it was when he was looking for for gorgeous old nineteenth century bikes that they came across old Clunkers, yeah, old, old Schwinn type. The, these fat tire bikes. That's right. Us. Yes, yeah. But anyway, that idea of of sharing cycling with the public to appreciate, make them appreciate cycling more, is is that very long held dream. And the idea behind the museum really is that the more people know the history of cycling, the better its future. As was most most things. <laughs> yeah. That's right. The better informed people are, the better off we are. Right, <laughs> <I wonder what laughs> in general, <laughs> it is so.
2: That's clear all around us every day. Yeah. So you've but, got a yeah. really amazing collection of old bikes here. Yes. Can you tell me more about them? I'll give
3: you a brief synopsis. Joe is amazing at showing these bikes because he is the curator. But basically on this, the deck that Jenny and I are looking at here, we start with a bike from the 1860s when the bicycle was wrought iron and wood to we covered a short period of about 30 years in which the bicycle then developed into what looks like a oh, a gorgeous modern fixie. They were indeed. It's an in 1894 Columbia, but it it's just strikingly beautiful in a in a modern way because the basic elements of the bicycle had uh, all been put together in that period of time.
2: I'm curious about this bike here. That the, the oh. tricycle mm-hmm. was that
3: was that aimed at women. Well. When in, in this period that we're talking about, when the bicycle was being developed, there were no givens, and people were working on two and three and four-wheeled vehicles, mm. and tricycles were being developed extensively in the in the period of the high wheeler. And a lot of men rode tricycles as well. In these earlier periods, there was a lot of tricycle racing and, and touring and so forth. Cool. But yes, the because women in the like say the. 1870s, 80s, that's the main period of the, of the high wheeler. Women were wearing clothing that, since you, you can't ride a bike side <laughs> no saddle, um, women's clothing kept them from being able to uh, sit astride a high wheel bike, but they could ride a tricycle. Mm-hmm. Um, I've never had any doubt that, about whether women actually did ride high wheelers, they just had to borrow a guy's clothing. Mm. There, you very often see scenes like the, what we have in the pictures here. Here's a yeah. group of men on high-wheel bikes, they're on what looks like basically a off-road conditions, riding down a hill. And there's one woman in the group, and she's on a tricycle, in her dress, <laughs> respectable. <Yeah>. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, yeah. But you
2: were talking about the kind of the history of the bike and the history of women's women's rights, women's
3: suffrage. Yeah. Do you want to tell me more about what we see here and how it correlates sure. with that? Yes. When in the latter part of the 1880s and the 1890s the technology of the bicycle had developed to the point where it had gearing and it had two equal-sized wheels and the rider was centered over the frame and was pedaling cranks. At that point, women's clothing was less of a barrier for cycling. And also the, the bike boom was just growing and growing. In that period, as the bike boom grew and grew, women women just got involved in cycling, and their clothing changed. Separated legs, or fairly elaborate leggings mm. that, that with skirts over them, yeah. things like that. There was a thing called rational dress. Rational dress, yes. yes. And women found new freedoms on bicycles, the, the the boom eventually became so huge that women were allowed to go out in groups on their own, and they were allowed to go out even cycling with young men. I, I get the impression that it would be easier for a woman to be allowed to go out on a ride with a young man than it would be for her to go out to dinner with him, huh. because it was just cycling was a huge thing. And the, and the manufacturers yeah. saw that, obviously, women are a large part of the market, <laughs> And they marketed the bicycle to women, and and the history behind that is really fascinating. How the manufacturers made cycling inviting and safe-looking wholesome. (laughs) And all of that. They were very, very, it was less sophisticated than it is these days. Uh, but but that's, they, they were doing that. But, they were, but also, you know, women loved cycling. Yeah. That feeling that you get when you sit on a bike and you turn the pedals and the amount of energy that you put into it takes you farther down the road than oh, yeah. you might expect to. Imagine how that was back then when you, no one had, you know, you hadn't done that before and you try it out as an adult and they were just amazed. And it's yeah. That feeling of empowerment is pretty clearly connected with more women feeling empowered to help bring about changes. Obviously, there's a great deal more to it. Mm -hmm. A lot of people working very, very hard and and, um, finding all kinds of barriers, too. (laughs) But there's a clear connection. And on this deck, we include a number of contemporary quotes from people of the time about cycling. Cool. Yeah, let's have a look. In possession of her bicycle, the daughter of the 19th century feels that the declaration of her independence has been proclaimed, and in the fullness of time, all things will be added to complete her happiness and prosperity. And that's a quote from a women's magazine from April 1896. I'd love to get a copy of that magazine. Yes, yeah, you can find (laughs) these things online. This is a quote from August 1896 by Joseph Bishop, social and economic influence of the bicycle in the magazine Forum, which was a general interest magazine. New social laws have been enacted to meet the requirements of the new order. Parents, who will not allow their daughters to accompany young men to the theater without chaperonage, allow them to go bicycle riding alone with young men. This is considered perfectly proper.
2: Mm Mm-hmm. So it's a
3: tool for courtship. Yeah. Susan B Anthony, one of the most famous women working in women's rights in uh, in the 1880s 90s, I'm not sure her exact period, but anyway, mm. this is an 1896 quote and she's a magazine interviewer asked her what she thought about cycling yes. and the bicycle. Mm. And she said, "I'll tell you what I think of the bicycle. I think it has done more to emancipate women than any one thing in the world."
2: I don't disagree. Oh, these bikes are beautiful. Even like the little
3: accessories. Yeah, the, the lights. The, the lights. The, 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 uh, we have a very good book uh, about the history so of the lights. Amazing. Really, there would have been very little um, street lighting in the in the period, except yeah. in in towns. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it, and your roads were rough too. But, mm-hmm. uh, you can see it kind of gets lost on here, but you see where this hub lamp? Yeah. This is a hub lamp. It's placed right in here, on a high wheeler, because if you put if you put your light way up here, you're not lighting the road surface as well. And these, these high-wheel bikes, kind of amazing to think about it, but most of the time they were ridden on unpaved roads. So uh, if you can light really your road painful. surface, <laughs> it's helpful. Yeah, we, 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 one of our favorite things is, is to do the research, collect old photos yeah. and things. This is Local photos as well. Yes, exactly. Uh-huh. When you do it around here, you're getting a picture in San Francisco of people in 1868, which is probably the year of this bike, and this, it was French. 1868 but they made it over to San Francisco. Cool. Yeah. You've got
2: some really nice old bikes and then you've got uh, across the the 20th
3: century. Yes, yeah, so to go back to the history of the museum, why the museum is here. There was this long held dream to show bikes to the public and there were a few factors that made it so this museum happened. The nonprofit was founded in 2013. Mm-hmm. And Joe Breeze, Otis Guy, Mark Vandetti, Lena Maria Estrella, and Julia Vilich were the main people were working on putting the nonprofit together so that we could actually have a museum and share the whole range of cycling with people. And the things that happened were that this big beautiful space that we have, this was the site of a locally run health food store that had moved into this space and beautifully remodeled it, and became so successful that they moved into an old supermarket building in another another part of town. Uh, They needed more space. This had been a sort of, you know, simple small-town grocery store. And so the space was available, and then Joe had guest-curated an exhibit at the San Francisco Airport Museum on the history of the mountain bike in Northern California. Northern California's contributions to mountain bike technology, cool. and in doing that, he learned a great deal about how museums were run, uh-huh. and he was doing something that he had so long wanted to be able to do. And that exhibit ran for about eight months, and then it came down. He had arranged; he had helped arrange the the loans of the various bikes and and so forth. And when that exhibit came down, the curators there gifted to Joe the backdrops that we see in this room. This tall black and white backdrop that's a photograph from up in the hills here including various places that are super popular for mountain biking so having those backdrops meant mm, maybe we really should do this Perfect. museum yeah thing. extension yes and then also the mountain bike hall of fame which had been founded in crested butte colorado
0: mm-hmm.
3: which is a fantastic place a high mountain town it's in the rocky mountains in colorado at over nine thousand feet it's a an amazing place for mountain biking and a really cool small town, which in the summer has loads of people coming for cycling and in the winter, people are coming for skiing. And it's remote, it takes quite a Sounds while like to get dream, to it. Though. It is, like, yeah, when you do. go there, you never want to leave. <laughs> you don't need to leave. No, no, you just want, this is where I want to be. <laughs> the people there had thought of founding a mountain bike hall of fame way back in 1988 and had been running it all those years as a nonprofit. And they knew that uh, fewer people could come to Crested Butte. Mm. Uh, and also that Crested Butte is a ski town in the winter. And they were also old friends of all the people here. They'd had many connections going back to the 1980s. And they just, I guess, all got, all got to talking about how if you moved the Mountain Bike Hall of Fame to Marin County, or any, any place where you have a, a bigger population coming through. Mm-hmm. We're, we're only 20 miles from San Francisco yeah. here. Then more people can see it and, it, and it's easier to keep it open year round, yeah. too. And so those guys, in founding the nonprofit, they had all these things in mind and, and just pulled it all together. So that's the mountain bike side, Mountain Bike Hall of Fame side, yeah? There's yes. also
2: just the Museum
3: of Bicycling. That's right. We are the Marin Museum of Bicycling. And then within the Marine Museum of Bicycling, we have the Mountain Bike mountain. Hall of Fame, yeah. which is it's a collection of bikes involved in mountain bike history, mm-hmm. or many of them. And then it's also, we've become the administrators of the Mountain Bike Hall of Fame, which has been honoring a group of people ever since 1988. People get nominated and voted upon, and numbers of people get elected each year you should, typically about four. Everything in this museum is a cool design project that everybody works hard at uh, making reality and what we have I here like is... The a the mountain
2: bike wheel. Yes we, we have a
3: yeah we spin a up here where we're gonna spin a mountain bike wheel to look at the uh, the years and the people inducted in each year so that you can just spin the wheel and see at a glance who you might be looking for and who's the latest. Our most recent inductees, this is 2017 and they they get inducted in the usually late September, early October. We had Giovanna Bonazzi, Brent Foes, Mark Norrstadt, and Wolfgang Renner. Cool. So, and then we have screens here where you can look up any of these many inductees. There are, mm, I forget, something in the range of 150 now since 1988. Do people get inducted based on, like, how many races they've won or
2: also just contributions to mountain biking in general?
3: It's basically contributions to the sport, Mm -hmm. which can be their racing career, it can be their advocacy career, it can be what they've done in journalism. In fact, it used to be in the days when Crested Butte uh, was running the Hall of Fame, they actually had categories for each year, and there'd be nominees within the categories to to make sure that it was always spread out that way. We've we've actually found it, it tends to sort itself out pretty well anyway, but the process is, the people at the museum are not choosing who's coming into the Hall of Fame. There's a a process done mostly online where people can uh, think of someone they would like to see in the Hall of Fame and they do a nomination for them. There's a, a committee, it's not part of the museum board, but a group of people from various parts of the industry look at all of those and make sure that the nominations... Are complete and have plenty of information, and that, and that it is someone who is who has had an impact on the sport mm-hmm. nationally to internationally. Especially these days, um, we're trying cool. to make sure that the Mountain Bike Hall of Fame is more international, because there was a period at first when it was more American. In 1999, Hans uh, Rey. Right. Yes, there you go. <laughs> a bunch of Europeans, because yeah. they knowing knowing that that uh, it should be an international. Hall of Hall fame. fame. They actually went to Europe to do the induction oh, wow. and really focused on on getting European nominations and having the induction nice. ceremony there. Nice. Yeah. On the website, you can you can read more of that. We'll post about. that below sure. so you guys can check it out. And then you had a, a special visitor. Probably a couple weeks. We were uh, lucky enough to have Peter Sagan in town. He was just very briefly in town. And what Jenny and I are, have come over to look at now is one of the bikes that he rode to a world championship. In fact, his first world championship in Richmond, Virginia, in 2015. And with a picture of him right here in downtown Fairfax, in front of our coffee roastery, uh, with the bike. So yeah, we did uh, of just a few of us. It was very short notice, but a few of us had the pleasure of meeting him. Joe and Otis got to do uh, some some riding with hi- awesome. with him for a for a. Uh, a video shoot and yeah it was it was really awesome we were just <laughs> we loved it
2: <laughs> but he wasn't recognized he said
3: that's right here yeah. here in America cycling is still something of a secret <laughs> not as there are fewer people here who follow Road racing or mountain bike racing, and yes, he was able to hang out in downtown Fairfax. And only the cyclists going by, the racing type cyclists, (laughs) the the real roadies who came by, did see who he was. But uh,
2: he can be anonymous here, which must be nice. Yeah,
3: yeah. And we do get visitors from all over the world. And one thing people love is the fact that the bikes that we have in here especially the mountain bikes they these really are the very bikes involved in the history mm-hmm. you when you look at these bikes you're see, it's, that's the very bike you saw in a magazine uh with a certain person riding it it's the if you've read charlie kelly's book fat tire flyer or read any of his history then we have one whole wall here where just about every bike on the wall is in that book and is an historic bike amazing thank you connie for it's your a time it's
0: jenny
4: My name is Wendy Cragg. Uh, why are you here? <laughs> why am I here? I, I, I guess you'd like to learn a little bit about my history with the bike and how I got involved with it. Being um, There weren't a whole lot of women riding bikes at all back then. When I accidentally, very totally by accident, discovered the mountain bike via my neighbor, Fred Wolf, who was good friends with Charlie Kelly, who was good friends with Gary Fisher, it was uh, basically an accidental tourist kind of thing. Yeah. Happy accident. <laughs> my first bike weighed 56 pounds. Oh <laughs> it was a J.C. Higgins. It had five speeds, and I think it had a drum brake in the rear. It was considered state-of-the-art then although it weighed almost half my body weight. (laughs) And my first bike ride was just out on a little single-track trail from my house to Tamarancho, which is where, well, it's a, a network of great riding now, but back then it wasn't so much. I probably rode a total of two miles my first ride, and I hated it. I hated it. It was uncomfortable. I just didn't, you know, I... Was that bike, though, designed to be for mountain bike? Yeah, it was. It was. was. And I was on dirt, you know, and I guess part of it was I wasn't in good enough shape to appreciate it. But I I gradually got talked into getting back in the saddle by my neighbor, Fred, who was into everything nature-related. He knew where all the wildflowers were. He knew where the wildlife was. Mm -hmm. And... um, he, he kind of convinced me that it would be so much easier to get there to find those things um, via the mountain bike than hiking, which is true. absolutely <laughs> true. So he, he kind of was instrumental in, in getting me into the mountain bike. And once I got into it, it didn't take that long once... Once I yeah. had established that I really did like it, mm-hmm. and then I got so hooked. I got so <laughs> hooked. It was like it was like everything that I wanted to be able to do, because I was really into hiking back then. But having the advantage of being able to go twice the distance, yeah, it really opened up a lot of, and and especially being a female, you know, it gave me a lot of independence and freedom. And uh, once I became strong enough that. Uh, I felt secure and, you know, it was a process Mm -hmm. not just to get stronger physically but stronger mentally that I could feel that I can do this by myself, you know. But there were a lot of great group rides, too, at the beginning. How old were you? Like, when were you going out on the weekends? Did you have to go to school? No, no, I was about 28, so I was an adult. I was an adult. Fortunately, I didn't have a real job, a real (laughs) job, because it would have interfered with my passion. (laughs) I was starting a textile business back then, so I had sort of a conflict of interest, you know? Am I going to ride my bike? Am I going to sit in my studio and create? And there were actually a couple of times when I thought, I wonder how I can rig up my bike to Hold my sewing machine with maybe a little compressor or something. I literally nice. had, was thinking out of the box, how can I take this out there and combine the two passions that I now you make have? Make it like a you know? pedal
2: powered sewing yeah, machine. Ex-
4: exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs>
2: <laughs> like the pedal powered knife sharpener, right? <laughs> the dude who rides around and then he like puts the kickstand right. up and
4: you could do that with sewing. So, yeah, but it kind of did cut into my time, but in a really a good way because it just expanded all my horizons, you know. It, it was like unlimited. And back then, we had full access to all the trails, all the fire roads, everything. It was just not it's anymore. It's been closed off for ah. decades, but back in the day, we could spend literally all day riding on the mountain. Did they close them off because of you? I think Were you guys it was up to, to no good. We, <laughs> the horse people the equestrians and the hikers the sierra club kind of came down oh. hard and they didn't like their experience being ruined by a, a mechanized encounter mm. with a mountain bike so yeah we had a lot of restrictions after that but oh. um but in the beginning uh, for the first four or five years we had pretty much the whole everything all of marin county you know we'd go out and ride on the coast, we'd go uh, all of Mount Tam. We'd do Loma Alta. We'd do. Things. Were they just day trips, or did you
2: bring camping equipment? No, it was all day trips. Day, it was trips. All day trips. Yeah.
4: You took a lot of
2: photos, mm-hmm. and a lot there's a lot of photos, mm-hmm. your photos in Fat Tire Flyer. Yeah. yeah. And
4: so, were you kind of one day? Were you like, I'm just going to bring my camera? Well, actually, I didn't have a camera. I was using my ex-husband's camera, and he was a guitar repairman for. The stars, so he'd go all over the world and he wanted his own camera, right? Because, I mean, the experience of being, you know, a world traveler, you always have to have a camera. So we ended up getting our own separate cameras, and once I got my own camera, it was always in my backpack. Mm -hmm. It was always in my backpack. So, you know, the extra film, the extra. Mm the extra lenses, the tripod, whatever. It was always there, ready to go, and I always had it. I don't yeah. think I ever went on a bike ride without it. And um, I, I photographed not just the bike thing, but I was photographing wildflowers and mushrooms and just actually <laughs> photographed the trail as I went. <laughs> it well, documenting everything. <laughs> I was documenting everything. Now, of course, you could do it with a digital camera. Mm-hmm. You don't waste all the film, but boy, I mean, I had... Thousands of slides. Wow, do you
2: still have them?
4: Yeah. I have a massive collection of slides that I go through about once every ten years, you know. I amassed quite a collection. <laughs> cool. You maybe you should do your own book. You know, people have come to me and said, yeah, you know, coffee-style book with, um, yeah. you know, Because there are a lot of, you know, I I was able to capture not just the places, but the people, the events, and there were few and far between, and there weren't that many people doing it back then, you know, we were really a select group, you know, when we say we were the clunkers, you know, and the... There were the clunkers in Fairfax, and then there was the ballooners in Mill Valley, uh-huh. and the bombers in Larkspur. So, so you had gangs. And we kind of had little <laughs> tribes, and we and I wasn't aware of the others, you know, and I don't know if they were aware of us. Oh, wow. And it wasn't until really Repack mm-hmm. that we realized there were more of us. And then they started coming from Berkeley, and it was like, wow, they're a... You know, this was a couple of years after yeah. the advent of it. Yeah, yeah, So we'd already pretty much established ourselves, you know, as clunkerers. Yeah. The repack, just the idea of, you know, being able to challenge someone else and see how fast they can go compared to you, you know, on dirt. It was a real a testosterone thing for these guys. Did, did you compete? I did compete a couple of times. I think I still hold a woman's record.
2: Nice.
4: Which was Five point which is only a minute twenty seconds slower than Gary. So <laughs> I mean, it's. But after a couple of, you know, I literally had trouble keeping my feet on the pedals. My legs would shake so hard, oh, wow. I was scared to death. It was terrifying.
2: So <laughs> most was it mostly downhill stuff? Oh, it's all, down, it was all well, downhill. the repack
4: is repack completely is downhill. downhill. Okay. Yeah, you just go for it. Yep. you know, and just two almost two miles. Good, you know. <laughs> there are some sections that are pretty treacherous, you know. I
2: can imagine. So, yeah,
4: and of, co- of course, some people had some pretty scary accidents, and I didn't want to. I didn't want to compromise myself after after up to a point. You mm. know. So then I started just hopping off my bike and taking photos at camera corner. You know, just that was where all the action was. Oh cool.
2: so, Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> um, what was it like
4: being? Were you?
2: really the only female or were there in these other groups were there like kind of one or two not that i knew
4: of we had a couple of other women that would fred's wife kind of joined us for a couple of rides but she really really didn't like it we Mm. i mean it wasn't really fair that we tried to initiate her you know by taking her up it, you know, that's just speed. not fair <laughs> on the hottest day of the summer, you know. <laughs> so we weren't really thinking ahead for that one. I think it's going to be fun. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> there were a couple. We had a friend named Vince, and his his wife, um, Carolyn, she rode with us occasionally. And then it wasn't really until Charlie had a girlfriend named Denise Caramano, and uh, she was pretty much she had balls she I mean she, she was, was yeah she was she got into it and she got into it well because Charlie kind of you know carried her as well yeah. which is a great thing because we needed some more women you out need, there yeah you just <laughs> and, need yeah but for push. the longest time it was just pretty much me you know I grew up in a big family I had four brothers yeah, and three yeah, sisters so yeah. I gravitated towards the things the boys were always doing you know and I was you know I grew up as a tomboy so It didn't matter to me that there were other women or not. I was going to do it one way or the other. You know, when I first discovered it, I would just spend all day out there by myself exploring, you know, with my camera. And I had my maps, and it was like being an explorer. It was exactly what I wanted to do. Well, I grew up wanting to be a merchant marine. I wanted to, explore, you know, travel, but... The ocean and I don't get along, so that wasn't going to work.
2: Well, you got the mountains and stuff. So
4: it worked out perfectly, you know, because I had this vehicle, you know, essentially that was going to propel me into places that... I really, really wanted to go. I'd wake up in the morning, look at the weather, and say, where am I going today? You know, awesome. What am I going to do today? How long do I have? You know, five, six hours. You know, That's Sometimes freedom, I'd just be out there it? all day. One time I actually went on three different rides.
0: In the same day? In the same day.
1: Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com weightloss weight PlushCare.com slash weight loss.
4: Hey, and I rode up my hill three times in one day. My yes. hill is
2: way up there. So you still live in the area? Yeah, I still and live grew there. up here? Yeah, I,
4: well, I, grew, I was born and raised in Berkeley, but been in uh, Marin since '68.
2: Mm-hmm. Have you seen it change? How do you? What, I'm talking about the area, but also about kind of
4: mountain biking itself. Well, obviously, back in the day, we had no idea what we were getting ourselves into. I'm thrilled to the max that it... Because in reality, the mountain bike happened right at the time the oil crisis was occurring. Mm-hmm. And no one rode bikes. No one, really. I mean, unless you were hardcore cyclists or, you know just go into the corner market to grab a quart of milk or something Mm -hmm. people just didn't you didn't see people riding bikes so it just came along at the perfect time and you know it's so functional yeah yeah so fat tires were a big plus you know it's just beefy bike you know you felt comfortable you handle any kind of asphalt, concrete thing, you know. Do you still ride now? I'm I'm riding again, yeah. I got back on my bike about a year ago. Cool. Yeah, so I had about a 10-year... I didn't get on it for 10 years, but I had ridden 30-plus years. Solid. Wow. Solid. There were probably... I could probably have counted on my hands the days I missed, you know. <laughs> no, I mean, really, I was uh, pretty much obsessed. Cool. You know? oh. And it was... um. I've I've said the same thing to everyone I've ever been interviewed by. It saves so many psychiatrist bills. There's nothing quite like the mountain bike for just getting introspective Mm -hmm. and dealing with any kind of issues you've got with yourself because you're all by yourself, you know? No matter how many people are around you, you're always by yourself in that regard. I'm kind of a diehard. I love my breezer. So many memories on that bike. Yeah. I probably have had about five mountain bikes in my life. This was definitely my favorite. Cool. And and I rode the um, original Breezer for so many years, and it never fit me, you know? And it was, like, way too big. And I think I put nearly 50,000 miles on it, though, just... You made it work. Yeah, I made it work. (laughs) Adapted it to me. You know, my roots are on the dirt, so... But I think that's probably why I'll be staying for a while. Nice. <laughs> um, sure, this is
5: Jackie Phelan, and I'm talking at the Marin Museum of the Bicycle with Jen and my husband, Charlie, and you wanted an encapsulation of my getting started.
2: Yeah, I was your like in a nutshell. <laughs> it's easy to do.
5: I had a teacher in high school that pointed out we'd spend a third of our lifetime energy earning to pay for a car, another third paying for a house. And I thought, what am I what am I going to play Scrabble and go backpacking? Maybe I better not buy a car. Maybe I shouldn't try buying a house. Maybe I'll just ride a bike, rent, and exchange nanny services. And so I just started out by not buying a car and just was like way ahead of the pack financially. Yeah. Yeah. Somebody caught me at a stop sign in San Francisco and said, hey, you should try racing. I'll, I'll even drive you to your first race. So he drove me to my first race, which I did super well in. It was a collegiate race. Were you riding really fast?
3: Well, he couldn't
5: they... catch up to me yeah. until a stoplight or six stoplights yeah. or whatever. And so he's just like, hey, you know, you could, you could be That's racing. Amazing. And I had, at the time, I was riding on a girl's Raleigh, you know, with the best basket and yeah, uh, I yeah, had a toy yeah. duck, a plush little mallard on my big fat bell biker helmet <laughs> because people laughing at you can't say that they didn't see you.
2: Exactly.
5: And it's a it's a sight gag anyhow, because you're cruising along through traffic and it might and look like there's a little duck moving <laughs> smoothly through the market street. So Daryl got me racing. I met other people at the race. We became friends. I began doing collegiate racing and doing extremely well. And then tried the real thing, which is the United States Cycling Federation. I think it's called USA Cycling now, but was really strong, but reviled because I was such a sketchy bike handler. It takes a while to learn how to ride at 20 miles an hour or 25 around a corner, handlebar to handlebar with other people. Mm-hmm. And uh, since I was undroppable, that meant I could be in the middle of the mix any old time. And would you please take up a new sport? <laughs> and at the time... Uh, we were putting together a team for me to race in the, um, the Zinger Classic, and I was shamed into not doing it, oh, even no. though the whole team was going to be built around me and my climbing abilities. I stayed home and oh, wrote no. a couple of letters, one to the Swedish national champion, Tulika Yara, and the other to a Dutch woman, American Carrie Peterson, who's an American but moved to Holland and was a racer. Did you run into any problems in your first year of racing? And they both wrote back and said, yeah, they were, wow. you know. I just needed to know that it wasn't me. You're not alone. No, I just, <laughs> uh, and I wanted to be popular. Charlie, yes. this is all too bloody familiar, right?
1: <laughs>
5: well, he, um, I'd heard of a faster tribe of fellows north of the Golden Gate Bridge. And so after a couple of flubs, I met Charlie and uh, we have been together ever since, which is wow. 1982. Awesome. I was racing your bike. Getting it out there.
2: So, Charlie, you were the builder. Yeah.
6: Okay. Yeah, I yeah, built uh, 188 in my, my career. They're very sophisticated, heat treated women mountain bikes. Not just that, but they really were cutting edge in terms of figuring out the oh. geometry and the frame design and stuff like that. So, they're very advanced for their time. And if people could afford them, they could run on them. Cool. And they often did.
5: I saw there was one in the corner. Is that the one? The red-tired one is auto, and that's my bike. And then the one up above is CC Proto, which is, it was his first, you know, it's shiny and has drop bars. It's yeah. pretty yeah, that easy one. to see. So that's Charlie. See how long the seat tube is mm-hmm. and how it's curved a little bit? Yeah, Long legs, long arms. Mine is a whole lot shorter in the, the head tube, and the seat doesn't stick way up like that. But anyway, I had a, a very light bike. I had 10 pounds less. Than everybody else at the time. Because it was
2: aluminium.
5: Uh, And had uh, two chain rings, not three. Uh three. I had toe clips, no one else used toe clips. They had flat pedals.
2: So I was connected to the bike. Combining kind of racing components
5: with. Right. With mountain biking. Well, yeah. Uh, a lot of people would say you couldn't get me to, like, tie myself onto my bike that way. And mm-hmm. I go, well, that's fine. You know? <laughs> <laughs> see, yeah, see you at efficient. the races.
6: Yeah. <laughs> you, can drive, you can drive the bike much more efficiently. Yeah. Right. So, and so if you much don't much crash later, a lot,
5: and... it's not like you're going to twist your ankle or no.
6: no. you can adjust.
5: So eventually, you know, Shimano came up with the ski-binding style situation. Mm-hmm. But I like Charlie's toe clips better because you can wear ordinary shoes mm. and tighten them and be in. Yeah. And not ruin your ride because you forgot your shoes. Mm-hmm. And you don't have to buy new shoes every, you know, yeah. every change yeah. of uh, technology. Anyway, uh, we had mass start races in those days, which were a little, you know, between one hundred and five or six hundred st- people CMPs with, uh, you know, mixed gender. People started at the same time. Yes, that's called mass start. That and is a mass start. A lot more fun. <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. You don't have to calculate who you beat. You yeah. Just, just get at the there. finish board and. You beat that many people, you don't have to like go, okay, well they left it. My wish was, you know, it was obvious people thought it was a men's game, and I knew it wasn't a men's game at all. I just, and I was an outlier for sure, but it wasn't, I don't know how to best put it, but I have read enough about women at the very front to know that I was going to be facing the usual uh, disparagement. Mm and condescension. And then when it becomes ordinary, it's always been like that. That's always what happens is first you're, you know, kind of out of your mind, and then it becomes more uh, mainstreamed. And yeah. then it was like, it was always like this. Yeah. And I save all articles in those magazines to prove that it, I started what off a whack for... job, and now it's, nobody underst- you know, like the editor would just go, oh shoot bickering about, you know, they, women get Why blah, you blah, blah. are making
2: a big deal?
5: Well, I was <laughs> taking notes, and things weren't so great for women in the beginning, and they still aren't. But worldwide, women, you know, get short shrift, and uh, after that, children and animals, but anyway, we're talking about women on bikes, and I, I thought that I could create a funny, safe environment with lots of tea and sweets and... You know, gab, uh, which constitutes conviviality. Sure enough, you know, little five year generations of women got better on bikes, stayed friends with each other, then a new group of people would show up and they'd all be friends with each other. And of course, the ones before were snobby about the ones after. And I don't have that gene of disparaging latecomers, so I always have looked after the super new ones. But most humans, they can't help it. We're hardwired to like the familiar true so there's where i uh, i you know i came up with patches and slogans and this is secret handshakes
2: yeah there's a secret handshake
5: yeah oh, wow. i love it uh, it's the Marx brothers it's- <laughs> It's under the leg. Yeah. You know the old Mark Brothers (laughs) shirt. And it was just so stupid. And I thought, I'm going to use that for something. I haven't gotten around to a decoder ring.
2: At Bite Kitchen in London, we have something called our Women and Gender Variant Night, which is our WAG night. Mm -hmm. And in the UK, WAG is a disparaging term for wives and girlfriends. And we decided to (laughs) subvert it. And it means basically anyone on the gender spectrum, except for cis males can come in, and we do twice a month lessons, classes on maintenance, because women are generally not welcome or f- made to feel welcome in <coughs> workshop spaces. Sure. And so we're like, come in, come into the back door, come in and get your hands dirty and and make mistakes, and it's okay because there's other
5: women here who are going to look after you. Right. A whole lot of um, dark art to the bicycle repair i took a repair class because the uh the teacher was teaching it because he wanted to lift the veil off the mystery of that's bicycling. exactly what i say. I, I call it pulling back the curtain right you know I'm Like come back here right i i think of it as this the tent the circus tent
2: yeah yeah and
5: i'm just scooting women in for free where the barkers are turning them away at the <laughs> ticket come door. get in under here right i'm with the band You've probably read the book by um, Francis Willard called Wheel Within a Wheel. No. It's required reading for your women. Okay, wheel within a wheel, guys. Mm-hmm. Get that. She was the head of the Women's Christian Temperance Union, burned out back then. It was the biggest group of women, agglomeration of women in the world. She was the head of it, burnt out. Her, her girlfriend invited her to stay in a year in England, and a friend gave her a bike named Gladys, and she swore that at age 54 she would learn to ride that bike so that younger women would be encouraged. So I'm really just Francis Willard all over again, except I didn't start old, although 25 for starting racing was considered quite old then. We're going to try to get mountain biking to seem like the obvious use of, uh, you know, a woman's obvious favorite tool. It's a revolutionary tool. I love her self-empowerment. So that's my story. Cool.
2: Hey, it's Jenny, and I'm here with...
6: Joe Breeze with (laughs) the Marin
2: Museum of Bicycling. And I've asked Joe to pick out his top three or top five favorite exhibits here at the museum. So we're going to go through a bit of history here and uh, learn something.
6: (laughs) Well, I hope so. I hope you do. (laughs) Maybe I will in the process. But what I have chosen are the very earliest days of the pedal bicycle, and uh, this is in the late 19th century and uh, we have uh, seven bikes, which really show the stepping stones in the evolution uh, from a bike just with pedals on the front wheel, pedaling directly to a bike that kinda looks like the basic profile of the, the bicycle we all love today. We have uh, a bike from 1868, wow. it's made in Paris, And it's made with wrought iron and wooden wheels, wooden spoked wheels with... With iron tires. This
2: looks so uncomfortable. Ah, in fact, <laughs> it soon
6: learned earned the Appalachian Bone Shaker because it was just rattle ah, your bones. so this is the original,
2: this yeah, is the Bone Shaker. Yeah, this
6: is where we started with the pedal bicycle. And you'll see a crank attached to the front wheel. And, and you're going to go down the highway as far per pedal revolution as the circumference of the wheel. Mm-hmm. That's the size of the gear on the bike right there. And... Um,
2: is that the brake?
6: Yeah, and it even has a brake oh on God. the rear wheel, which is attached by a rawhide cord uh, all the way to the handlebar through pulleys, and you can spool up the handlebar to wrap that rawhide oh, wow. around and pull on this block-and-tackle system to apply the rear brake to the, a wooden shoe against the iron tire. To slow you down hopefully uh, with a little anticipation perhaps <laughs> and, and uh, hey you got to start somewhere yeah, right and yeah, this is pretty true. much the beginning somewhere. this company uh, michaud and company is the first commercial maker of a pedal bicycle and they're just three years into the first production of such a vehicle and uh, it's it's wrought iron hammered together red hot in a forge it's it's the this is the very earliest days before steel was even available wow so, uh, yeah, they made thousands, their competitors made thousands, and there was a a rip roar and deal in the late eighteen sixties, including international races eighty five miles long, pedaling these bikes that are probably most all over seventy five pounds each.
2: <laughs> oh my God. <laughs> So, I'm so glad we've had progress. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
6: yeah, I don't know how far this would have continued on, and, no. and uh, but it did. And and uh, it actually, the hub of cycling shifted to uh, Coventry, England, after the Franco-Prussian War of 1870. And, and there they took it up in, uh, in Coventry. Uh, now, this next bike here, it's a penny farthing a high wheel bike it's beautiful and and it is a prime example of a high wheel bike mm. and it's because it's a rudge and daniel rudge is the very guy who figured out the basic ingredients for a ball bearing.
2: Uh Uh-huh. Okay,
6: and and on his bicycle, his patent of 1878, you'll see on the main bearings there, is the bearing that is considered the great-granddaddy of all ball bearings in the world. Amazing. Yeah, not just in the bike industry everywhere.
2: Wow. And this
6: is what our world turns on largely today. Oh my and it started right here with the bi- with the bicycle because the bicycle was the perfect scale of vehicle to develop the ball bearing and there was this amazing craze because the bicycle was coming up in the world and and a locomotive by the way doesn't have ball bearings uh, that uh, the force from a locomotive would crush ball bearings. <laughs> so like I say this is the perfect scale of vehicle.
2: Cool. And is this an example of
6: yeah, it there's there's gives you an idea right of what a ball bearing is. It's simply a series of wheels inside a wheel to roll effortlessly. Beautiful. Where before that, you just had what was a, a plain journal, if you can imagine a, a simple bolt going through the, the crank spindle, mm. and then around that would just be a, a bushing, Bushings, just a solid chunk yeah. of bronze, really. Maybe have some oil running between it, but it doesn't roll anything like mm-hmm. a ball bearing.
2: And this is sealed? This yeah, this is, is a loose? modern
6: ball bearing. This that's is maybe that's from modern. 1950 or so. But Where's this one from? Oh, it's about the similar vintage, but it's just showing you the basic oh, okay. ideas of a ball. Even the, the, when they were first making those ball bearings spherical, they were cutting them on lays, and it was quite wow. a lengthy <laughs> process, but some clever man in Schweinfurt, Germany, Heinrich Fischer, figured out how to make these balls by the millions per day buy with this clever rilling plates and that changed the whole deal. Everybody was putting ball wow. bearings everywhere after that. It really <laughs> brought the, the price down quite a bit. When you look at one of these penny-farthing bikes, I'm sure there are plenty where you you are.
2: uh, (laughs) (laughs) Oh, everywhere, everywhere.
6: (laughs) Oh, everywhere. Everybody's (laughs) on a high-wheel bike, aren't they? Yeah. If you do happen to come across one, maybe at the the Coventry Museum, uh, they have a smattering of them. But you'll notice that the wheel, the driving wheel, the main wheel on the bike, the the, the wheel that made them called the wheel doesn't look a whole lot different from our wheels and our bicycles no. today. They have tangential spokes, they have J-pull spokes, Three they cross. have spoke nipples so you can <laughs> true the wheel easily. Those were ideas that just came in of Few years before eighteen eighty-six, when this bicycle, when this rudge was made, cutters' uh, yet, yet there's there's <laughs> one ba- real difference between a high wheel bike and the bikes we ride today. Even if the wheel does look the same, when you look at a penny farthing, it doesn't look anything like what we're on. And but they sit on the bike in the same relationship as we do today. That is, set back from the cranks. not direct. We don't sit directly on top yeah. of the cranks, we're set back at an angle to the cranks. But in their case, their feet are on the very fulcrum point of the front wheel. And you, uh, if you're sprinting and leaning forward and want to go really fast, you're, you're on the rivet, well, yeah. you run the risk of teetering over that fulcrum point and landing on your head. I think Ooh. it's where the term header comes from, Uh from one of these high-wheel penny farthings. Yeah, so what came after this, of course, is The safety cycle, (laughs) because the high-wheel bikes were anything but safe. So (laughs) the early 1880s was the high point of tricycles. There were many configurations made, and um, those clever people in Coventry like James Starley were figuring out how to make them better and better. And James Starley actually had women in mind when he came up with the safety, because in the Victorian era... And the clothing that women were supposed to wear back mm. then, they were very cumbersome, tight-fitting, tight-corseted, tight-waisted, mm-hmm. impossible clothes, that uh, where women could not ride a yeah. high-wheel bike. They could not straddle a high-wheel bike. So Starley came up with this clever design where the driving wheel is on one side to the left, and the steering wheels or the turning wheels ah. uh, are on the right, operated by a central lever cool. uh, to turn both wheels simultaneously. And women learned just as much freedom as men riding cycles and uh, soon came up with what was called rational dress. Okay, and, and of course, they were immediately banished from all the tea houses in England because this was scandalous, the audacity of challenging, challenging our social mores. And because of the freedom of cycling, that everybody just couldn't help themselves but have. Really, cycling transcended social mores, and it really had a big hand in the emancipation of women uh, that went right on through the latter part of the 19th century and up to the time of the right to vote, the whole suffrage movement. And it largely generated from this craze of cycling in the late 19th century.
2: It was a vehicle for revolution.
6: (laughs) (laughs) That's right. Very good. Very good. Now, the next bike that came along, and as clever as Starley was with his two-track tricycle, Mm. one track is going to be better. It's going to be less expensive. It's going to be lighter. It's going to be easier to wend your way, especially down a rough road. Only one track to keep your mind on. And it's the roller chain, or specifically the bush roller chain, that made the safety bicycle possible. Can I touch it? Yes you it's may. It's huge. Yeah, yeah. Compared well, hey, with what we like, have. Like they now. say, you gotta start somewhere. <laughs> and uh, that is in fact a rental change that you see right there. The original and it was Hans Reynolds who came up with this wow. idea, a Swiss immigrant to Manchester, England who um, oh, with Starley, with James Starley, figured out this bush and roller system. It's yeah. not just a simple chain. It's yeah. The bush roller chain today is still the most efficient method of transmitting power known. How um, do you feel
2: about belt drive?
6: It's not quite as efficient, <laughs> but it is cleaner, and I ride bikes with uh, belt drive. In fact, mm. I rode one down here today. Uh-huh. Yeah. But yeah, this in fact is a rental chain that wow. you see right there. Uh, And now you're able to pedal from a remote place, Mm -hmm. no longer attached, say, to the front wheel to drive the bike uh, and sitting above it like we do. They've moved you and those pedals back on the bicycle to where a seat on a bicycle is today, and no longer are you perched high up over that fulcrum point. You're well behind it, and you're less likely to go over the handlebars, right? And with this transmission... In the same position where we pedal on a bicycle today, you're able to now gear it up through a big wheel, big chain wheel in front and a small mm-hmm. one in the back to make it so that driving wheel does not have to be nearly as big as it was. It can be maybe half the size to go the same distance down the highway for every pedal revolution.
2: So this is fixed as well.
6: Yeah, in fact, all these bikes on this 19th century deck are fixed.
2: We've um, got a front brake here.
6: That's right, push-rod front brake on the front wheel, on the front tire. There are still solid rubber tires. Wow. Perhaps the only downside to the new safety design... Was now the spokes were only half the length of what they used to be on the penny farthing, and that was suspension in you know, a wire tension ah. wheel. The hubs hang from the top of the wheel, and those long slender steel spokes are suspension. So, and so now a you only had half as much comfort, right? <laughs> 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 and, and they're all grabbing their rears, going, uh, "Oh my no. gosh!" because they're still on these hard rubber tires. And so the frame designers are curving the tubing in the frame and the fork blades, oh, and of course I see. The, saddle the saddle rails. Yeah. To make it more compliant, yeah. and, and so and it still wasn't Vertically good enough compliant. because of the tire. So what they did next yeah. was articulated suspension. That is, the rear of the bike frame and the front of the bike frame were separate from each other, and there was a bearing around the crank spindle so that the swing arm, that rear half of the bike, could rotate around that crank spindle oh, to gosh. give you two to three inches of suspension travel. Yeah. that springs, like this, these big torsion springs here, could control that movement with to give you this articulated frame. A hundred years before the mountain. Bike. I was going to say, is this the precursor to? Yeah, sure. This is, and this many is make, makers bikes. made full suspension bikes, front and rear. Wow. And because they were still on the hard rubber tire, yeah. the solid rubber tire. That is
2: front suspension. I
6: should point out, this is the American Rambler. Yeah. Okay, this is, uh, for those with a few more years of wisdom on uh, on yourselves, you might remember American Motors and Rambler cars. This is the American Rambler the progenitor of those two car companies. And five of the bicycles that we show on this deck here went on to manufacture cars. Cars. It's the same brain trust. You know, these are the baby steps toward later technologies. And even the the Wright brothers were bicycle builders before flying at Kitty Hawk. Uh, Around the corner here, we've got an example of front suspension. Front suspension. And uh, this is right when John Boyd Dunlop, is figuring out the airfield pressurized pneumatic tire like we have today. It's kind of like we have today. Uh, And he was a veterinary surgeon in Ireland. I think he had the biggest practice in Ireland at the time. What? Yeah, and he had access to surgical tubing. Okay, rubber tubing. And one day his son complains of a rough ride on his tricycle and dad comes to the rescue. Ah, I can put that tube, glue it together into a circle, poke a valve stem into it, Mounted onto a spare bicycle wheel, wrapped canvas around the whole mess, the rim and essentially that inner tube. Wow. And then he pumped it up with a soccer pump, a football pump, and found it, and, then, and then rolled out uh, one of these new wheels of his, and the old wheel, side by side, rolled them down the street and was astounded with how far the new pneumatic tire went and how it bounded down the street. And he thought of a racing, a bicycle racing friend of his, and he built two a set of wheels for him, and wow. that guy started winning everything, and everybody had to have that and it just it just sent what was this huge craze of cycling into this stratosphere and uh, you know this became kind of the darling of society, and everybody was really digging bikes in this golden age of cycling of the 1890s. yeah, it was quite a moment amazing so and now you so these are... finally had. Uh, pneumatic tires suspension right on your wheels yeah, on and, wooden rims and on wooden <laughs> ribs in this case <laughs> and and now you could uh, streamline the frame down to this simple diamond shaped structure like kind of like we ride today yeah. and no longer did you really need the articulated frame because now you had suspension right at the roadway where it does the most good with a voluminous uh, pneumatic tire new, pneumatic wheel and so here that you have by by eighteen ninety four you yeah. have the basic form of a bicycle today yeah. in profile it 's not a whole lot different from the bikes most of us ride uh, for getting around and, still... and it 's not because these guys had reached perfection at this point mm. it 's because from this point onward, people would have other uh, vehicles and other ways of getting around to focus to, to apply their attentions to and where competition had absolutely improved the breed up to this point and made all these amazing changes, from this point onward, racing would be more about the athlete and less about the technology. Mm -hmm. And so that is why bicycles look as they do today. It kind of stopped in about 1900, and it's really artificial uh, racing. You know, the bikes that we are on, the reason that it's such is because it's about the athlete, not so much about the technology. Not that there aren't great differences in a bicycle of today, but the basic form is such because the rule books mandated it. Interesting get you to the here where we are yeah, today yeah, essentially, yeah. and and I should add that the UCI recently hinted this is the UCI is the union cyclist international, the world uh, sanctioning body for all things bicycle racing, and they just recently hinted that they might be interested in giving back to humanity once again, you know, by the developing of bicycle through racing for everybody, where because bicycling has, for so many decades has been about the athlete, mm-hmm. not about the technology, we haven't seen so much. So. So uh, Because
2: you know, UCI has been imposing rules yeah, on what kind Yeah, right. Of bikes I mean, the UCI
6: and, and. So, like yeah. the whole disc brake debacle kind
2: of thing. Or, well, that's
6: uh, a detail of it, but there are plenty yeah. of designs that have been set by the way. Or like side. Graham
2: Obrey couldn't yeah, race. Yeah, something like and, that. Or oh, I mean,
6: even a Y bike. Like in 1995, Trek came out with this beautiful design, this Y frame. I'm not yeah. talking about the mountain bike version, but the road bike one, yeah. where you had the basic structure of the frame going from the head tube to the rear axle, and you could stomp on that bike and it was super stiff and at the same time only a beam went out horizontally to the the saddle saddle, so vertically that gave you compliancy, a smoother ride while laterally and torsionally you were on this really cool sprinting frame well to the UCI that did not look like a bicycle and therefore it was outlawed and Trek stopped making it yeah, so, so things like that, maybe those can come back. There's a lot to be said for the basic uh, configuration of you on a bicycle. You're like a cat on a bicycle, mm-hmm. and when something is coming in you, toward you, you can hop out of the way. Yeah. But maybe a recumbent, not so much. You're like a sack of potatoes. Not that uh, there aren't good <laughs> things about recumbents, but the, the upright safety bicycle, if you will, is a really great design. So go out and have fun on yours once, once the daylight hits. <laughs>
2: It's Alex. I'm here to finish up the podcast. If you like what we do, like us on SoundCloud, rate us on iTunes, and don't forget to subscribe. Do you know somebody who likes cycling and podcasts? Then recommend our podcast because everybody appreciates it. Until next time,
6: bye!